So here's our basic premise throughout this entire series that we've been calling Margin, and it's simply this, and that is that progress, all the unprecedented technological and societal changes that we have had in the last 100 years that have enhanced our lives greatly have also robbed us of margin in some key areas of our lives. It's not complicated. We're simply noting that with the good has also come the bad that though life is better and less harsh than it has ever been. I mean, it's hard to argue with penicillin, electricity, cars, air travel, robust economies, microwave ovens, phones, MRIs, and all the other amazing technological and societal changes that have occurred in our Western world in the last 100 years, that with all of these wonderful things have come some unexpected downsides, and not the least of which is this whole reality of marginless living. I mean, we've noted this and it's obvious we're constantly tapped, always tired, always living on the ragged edge, constantly pushing things to the point of overload. And what our ancestors had just a hundred years ago in the way of margin, in the way of reserves and space in the most important areas of our lives, you and I now lack. And it's creating havoc in our souls and definite stress in our relationships. So progress, simply note, has been a blessing and a bane at exactly the same time. And so we're exploring in this series how to gain margin once again in our time, finances, emotions, and our physical life. And so last week we covered time. And we looked at the fact that we need to slow down, we need to brutalize our to-do list, and we need to ruthlessly prioritize that which matters most. And today we come to one of the most tangible aspects of margin, that of our physical lives. And once again, what you and I simply need to note very quickly is how progress has been a great friend to our physical lives, but at the same time has also robbed us of some things in our physical lives. So first, a friend. I mean, you'd have to either live on Mars or be as dense as dense could be to miss all the amazing things that progress has brought to our physical lives. I think this sums it up best. According to the Life Extension Foundation, our average life expectancy in the U.S. has just about doubled in the last 150 years. Imagine that. Unprecedented in the history of the known world, we have doubled life expectancy. In 1900, just over 100 years ago, the average life expectancy was 47 years of age. This was because of infant mortality, disease, lack of nutrition, lack of medical care. And yet in 2009, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention announced an all-time high life expectancy for the average American at 78 years of age. 76 for men and 80 for women. And though I know that's a bummer for some of you here today, because you're saying, doing the math with your age, please know that's just an average. That, that assumes that some folks die at 55, others at 95, but please see the average has nudged up to a level unprecedented in the history of the known world. I mean, over the last 100 years, we've developed safe food, we have electricity, we have travel and communication technology that allows us to do all the things that we do today, all life-enhancing and prolonging our lives to where nobody ever thought it would be possible. I mean, we have things today that even Nostradamus and Da Vinci ever dreamed of. They never thought we'd do these things. However, and this should stun us, with all of this good, 
that we thought would solve most of our problems, we now have other problems that, that nobody predicted. Not the least of which is now lack of margin in our physical lives. Now, so check this out. The same Center for Disease Control that has shown us life expectancy also cites that currently more than 50% of all deaths in America are related to lifestyle choices. Isn't that interesting? But we've been able to change lifestyle so significantly with medical technology and all the things that we have, and yet that same lifestyle now still contributes to 50% of all deaths. You're saying like what? Well, things like constant high stress, pollution, poor eating habits, drug use, lack of sexual restraint, too little sleep are all things that we have documented that contribute to disease and even death, 50% of them, uh, today. And so even just consider the whole idea of too little sleep. Do we all realize electricity was one of the greatest inventions ever known to humankind? But the day that we invented electricity was also the day that we could now get around this whole idea of having to go to bed and having to get up, right? You ever watch The Little House on the Prairie or The Waltons? You remember those shows? When did they go to bed? When the sun went down. I mean, a candle can only go so far. And when did they get up? When the sun came up. And so you had a natural pattern from creation that we'll talk about here more in a minute that helped develop sleep patterns. They didn't need Ambien back then. They didn't need NyQuil. I mean, the reality is they didn't need anything to help them sleep. They had the sun. That, as soon as we invented electricity, everything changed. Now you and I can go to bed when we want to. We can stay up all night if we want to. We can wake up whenever we want to. We control our sleep. And I'm telling you, it's created a lot of problems that way. Uh, progress, that's just one example, has brought so much to our physical lives, but it's come at a high cost, not the least of which it's robbed us of margin. Now, when it comes to our physical lives, then what's the solution? When it comes to our body, we're going to talk about emotions on Mother's Day, timely for Mother's Day. We're going to talk about finances next week. We talked about time last week. But when it comes to our bodies, what's the solution? And more importantly, because we all know the Bible comments on this, what does the Bible say about how you and I can get margin back once again in our bodies, in our physical lives? And I'm going to share with you a bunch of passages today, about five or six, but one main passage that's going to be tied to our main point here. And here's our main point, and that is that the Bible tells us that the key to developing physical margin is balance in your overall physical life. We're going to flush this out in a second here, but, but it's important you grab on to the theological point here. The key to developing margin, God says, in your physical life is to strive for balance in your overall life. But what do we mean by this? I, I, like we did last week with time margin, I want to go all the way back to the beginning uh, to when God made this world that you and I live in and made us as well. And I want you to notice a key thing that went on when God ordained or when God made this world. A key thing that got ordained and patterned that has everything to do with you and I gaining physical margin once again. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Again, a really easy passage to find. Genesis, first book in the Bible. Go to the second chapter, chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading the first three verses, which is just a few sentences here. But it is jam-packed, full of life-changing truth. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God rested his work, finished, I'm sorry, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, let me ask you a very obvious question here that I don't think many Christ followers ask today when they read this passage, but it's really the most important question to ask, and it's this. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Why do you think God took the seventh day off? Was it because he was tired? Was it because he had exerted himself so significantly on the first six days of creation that he said, gosh, I'm exhausted. I think I need to rest. Do you think that's why he did? Not at all. I know what most theologians point out, and this is right, is, is that God never sleeps nor slumbers. Psalm 121 tells us this. So it couldn't be that he needed rest. No, God rested because at this very point in creation, after he made the heavens and the earth and us, he put into effect a system of activity and then rest, of work and then ceasing to work, of movement and then stopping movement for the sole reason to create an equilibrium, a balance, if you will, to this world that he had just made. In other words, don't miss this. God rested on the seventh day because this world that he made, everything from animals to plants to humans, is the kind of world that depends on a delicate and energy-producing balance between work and rest, activity and sleep, being on the go, and then not on the go. And so you and I today add physical margin back into our lives when we recognize and honor this system of balance that God originally knit into the fabric of his creation. And so similar to how we did uh, last week, maybe look at it this way. You know, human beings who are made in the image of God have made a lot of things over the years, right? And one of the coolest things that we have ever made, in my opinion, is an automobile. I just love them. They're a work of art. They can go fast and give you an adrenaline rush. You really shouldn't drive them fast, but I'm told they can go kind of fast. <laughs> and they're the kind of things that come in all different shapes and sizes. I mean, an automobile is an incredible invention. And isn't it interesting that you and I, made in the image of God, made, having made automobiles, uh, now have made automobiles with four levels of speed. Look up here on the screen. They come with park, low, drive, and overdrive, if you have like an automatic transmission. So we make automobiles that are capable of functioning at park, rest, and renewal. They can sit in your garage, away from the burning sun. They can get rest from a long day of driving. We can put it in park and your car will rest. And then also your car can function at low, kind of slow moving, the Sunday driver, the kind of moving that allows relationships to be built and fostered where distractions are prevented and unwanted. Your car can function at low, just like human beings can function at low. And then your car can function and drive, kind of like human beings can function and drive. On a human level, this would be work and play, productivity, using a moderate amount of energy just to keep going. But we've made a car that is like a human being that put it in drive, set it at 55, 60, 65 miles an hour, and it will just go for three, 400 miles on one gas tank. And then we even have cars, in fact, most cars that can function in overdrive. 
We made cars that, that for the unanticipated situation, you can push a little button and put it in overdrive and it'll get you up that hill if you're pulling a trailer. It, it, it'll slow you down on the, the hill if you need to put some resistance to it. Just like human beings who can function in overdrive needed energy for unanticipated situations or for a deadline that you need to ramp up to, we've created cars that way. So given this analogy, let me ask you a really obvious but important question. What level do you think most Americans function at most of the time? It's drive to overdrive, isn't it? I think most Americans somewhere, again, we, we joked last week and said we got some Americans that are living at Parker Low. We'll do another series for them in the future. But the reality is most Americans function more in drive and overdrive. Now, let me ask you this. When you consider the major areas of our lives, work, play, family, church, community, and then our own personal and spiritual health, what are most Americans notorious at prioritizing more than anything else. What do we tend to function in overdrive at more than anything else? Wouldn't it be work? I mean, we are the working nation. You know, for years, people have thought that the Japanese were actually the hardest working nation in the world because that tends to be the image we have of that culture. But in 1995, there was a study done in Germany that revealed that America still leads the way in the world in hours worked per year on average, coming in at a staggering 1,896 hours per year for the average American. Some of you say, well, that's a 17-year-old statistic. Good point. In 2000, they did a similar study and found that it had actually gone up. Now Americans were working 1,978 hours per year for the average American, more than Germany, Japan, Canada, or any other developed or undeveloped nation. And we do this, as we saw last week, because we're pretty convinced that more equals better. Even though we tell our kids that's not true, even though we tell our kids that eight candy bars before dinner, more does not equal better, as adults, we do that. And we figure that if we work 80, 90 hours a week on average, then we'll have better productivity, even though studies show that's not necessarily true. But even worse, the price that we have paid for all of this overdosing, overdrive at work has been that other areas of our lives, now don't miss this, are out of balance. And as a result of that, we lack physical margin in our lives. We've ramped up one area to, uh, to arguable success and excess. And as a result of that, other areas pay. I want to show you this in a kind of a graph form. You engineers will love this. Richard Booby, who is a physicist and an engineer, points out uh, this when he cites that striving for excellence too much in one area, like work, actually leads to what he calls negative excellence in other areas of one's life. So you can see it there on the graph. You take the areas of your life, career, education, family, emotions, church, exercise, rest, and community, which are arguably the areas in our lives that we want to focus on. And he says that if you're really just focusing in an overdose way on your career, he said you can't then have balance in every other area of your life. It's impossible. And what he argues is that for those who are really functioning in overdrive in their career, they probably got a pretty good education, so that's rather high. They might see a therapist, so their emotions are still a little bit above the norm. They definitely exercise, because most people that are focused on their career then go right to the gym, and they might do a little bit of community service. But notice what happens to family, 
to church and to rest. Negative excellence. You're in negative number territory. And tell me if this isn't true for how our lives tend to function. That you can't focus on one area in an obsessive way and not have other areas pay for it. Are you seeing the logic behind balance, behind, behind what God says to us in Genesis 2? So give me another click here. What, what Booby argues here is that once you then get your career in focus for how God wants you to, you can start to get balance in other areas of your life. And all I know is when I saw these two charts years ago, I thought, I kind of like the looks of the second one better than the first one. And that first one looks kind of disjointed. The second one kind of reads more like Genesis chapter 2. Uh, folks, God himself rested on the seventh day. Why? Because he knows something about his creation. He knows something about how he made you and me. And integral to us is this balance between work and rest. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying right now, but Jamie, if I create balance and margin so as to get more of an acceptable level of excellence across the board, I got to tell you, my excellence at work is probably going to go down. Because I hear you say that more isn't better, but I'm telling you pragmatically, I've been able to make more equal better on my job. And so if I cut back on that to get rest and margin in other areas of my life, it's going to affect my work. And what's the answer to that? You're right. So what are you going to choose? I'll grant you that you very well might be right. Tom Peters is arguably the foremost corporate management consultant alive today. And he says the same thing. Look what he says here. He says, we are frequently asked if it is possible to have it all, a full, satisfying personal life and a hardworking professional one. Our answer is no. Excellence is a high cost item. That should sober some of us. I don't think, I don't know what the context is of this quote. I, I found it years ago. I, I think he means go nuts so at your work and hopefully the family thing will work out. I, as your pastor, would say, switch it. That's not right at all. Jesus said it this way. Je Jesus is great in the way he approached this topic. Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, think your career and work, and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? meaning your personal spiritual life, your family that is precious to you, your friends that God has given you, the margin that he created you to have. And so I beg you here, simply see the way God has wired you and I, written into our DNA, is this whole idea of balance predicated on working hard, but then having rest. And we ignore this to our own peril. And I think it's really the core to how to develop physical margin. And so given where we are today, I want to leave you this morning with two very practical applications to this gener gener Genesis 2 kind of principle. And I'll just warn you before we put the first one up here that these are going to be really hard things for many of us to live. They will. It's like that old adage, easier said than done. The solutions that I'm going to put before you right now, in one sense, you're going to go, well, duh, I already knew that. But you're also then going to do a gut check in your life and you're going to say, and I'm not living this very well. And yet connect the two there because therein lies the problem. Here's the first thing. And that is you want physical margin, you must prioritize Sabbath rest. You must 
prioritize Sabbath rest. That's what Genesis 2 is telling us here. That if you want to have balance back in your life, then you as well need to get on a program where it becomes at the very minimum six to one when it comes to work versus rest. I want to show you what I mean. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Fascinating context. Deuteronomy 5, some of you know this, is the giving of the Ten Commandments. So God's giving the Ten Commandments here that Moses brought down from the mountain. And I want you to look in the middle of the Ten Commandments what one of the commandments is and what God says about it. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. It says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or even the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, this is somewhat tricky here. It really is. What's going on here? I mean, taking its cue from creation, where as you and I just saw a few minutes ago, God rested one out of seven days. God here establishes a law and puts in commandment form that you and I should rest on a Sabbath, which back in the days of, of Jesus and the Old Testament were, was the day of Saturday. So their Saturday rest was, Sabbath day rest was Saturday. Some today, as we'll see in a second, have made it Sunday, but never the mind, we're commanded here to rest one day a week. And yet where it gets tricky is that unlike some other laws in the Old Testament that it's easy to say, well, those things were culturally contextual and they obviously don't apply today, it's not so simple with the Ten Commandments, is it? I mean, these are the Ten Commandments. As we're going to see, most of them appear in the New Testament as a command. And this particular commandment goes all the way back to creation as we saw with Genesis chapter 2. So I don't think we can just dismiss this as not relevant today as quite frankly most Christians do. And so what do you do with this? There have been three exegetical options that well-meaning, well-thought-out theologians for the last 2,000 years, even longer, have come up with on how to interpret this fourth commandment. And so let me give you those three options, and then hopefully you can choose one with my help. Here's the first option, and that is that some argue it's still a law, it's still a commandment. It was given to all generations and all peoples that we must cease one day per week, either on Saturday or Sunday, depending on your denominational tradition. And so some of you grew up in a more what we call reformed church. If you grew up in a Presbyterian environment, Christian reformed environment, uh, some of you grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist environment, you know that the entire believing community says this thing is still a law and we as a believing community will rest on either all day Saturday and all day Sunday. So you grew up in a church in which you were taught that you don't go out to eat on Sunday. The restaurant better not be open. I mean, in Grand Rapids 40 years ago, nothing was open on Sunday. Why? Because the whole community said, this is a Sabbath day rest. It's a commandment. 
You break it just like you'd break any other commandment. It's just like swearing. It's like murdering. It's like stealing. Don't break the Sabbath. If you grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist church, you couldn't watch football on Saturdays. What a bummer. You didn't know what college football was until you came to Scottsdale Bible Church <laughs> because you were told you couldn't do anything like that on, on a Saturday. So there are entire denominations that are built around this idea that this is still a law. The problem with this interpretation, however, is that when you flip to the New Testament, nowhere does the New Testament in Jesus' teaching or the epistles ever say that Sabbath keeping is a law. Isn't that interesting? Nowhere in the New Testament, in fact, the epistles only mention the word Sabbath twice and neither at all are in the context of the fact that it's still a law. And so it's hard to see this Sabbath as binding today as it was in the Old Testament as a law. In fact, I, in fact, out of all the Ten Commandments, isn't this fascinating? Nine out of ten of them appear in the New Testament restated as commands. Only Sabbath keeping isn't. And so the reality is it's really hard to make the case based on Deuteronomy 5 that we should all be declaring as community of faith a day and keeping it together. It's hard to make that case. So this has caused some then to go for option two curtain number two. And that is that they say it's not a law anymore at all. It was only applicable to Israel because in Jesus, they argue, we now have the real rest for our souls that we need. And so in Jesus, we have all the rest we need. And it doesn't matter whether you take a day off or not. That's a legitimate entire Christian interpretation that some have had over the years. They further point to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. My, my marketplace Bible study just got done studying this in which we saw that God in comparing the New Testament age and Jesus' time to the creation principle of rest tells us that now in Jesus we need to enter into a rest in our relationship with him because he gives us rest for our souls. And what some argue is that because we now have that rest in Jesus, we don't need to honor at all this commandment to rest. And though I'd agree, certainly, that we have rest in Jesus, I think it's taking it way too far to say that just because Jesus gave us rest for our souls, that God's creation intent for rest for our bodies no longer stands, right? I mean, don't you think that'd just be taking it a little bit too far? I mean, when Jesus said he gives us rest for our souls, when Hebrews tells us to enter into the rest, they're using the Sabbath rest principle as an analogy for the rest we have now in Jesus through forgiveness of our sins and relationship with him and all of that. But I don't think it's abrogating God's creation intent that you and I should never have physical rest on a seventh day. So there's a, so there's a third view in making sense of God's design from creation and his law given to Israel that I have opted for for years because it's been a very good friend to me and I think it makes the best sense exegetically. And this is basically this point and that, or this option, there's no longer any mandatory legalistic law that requires a Sabbath rest on Sunday or Saturday. But the principle, however, of regular weekly needed rest still stands and you and I ignore it to our own peril. I, I think that's exactly where you land when you add all this up in a reasonable way. 
This honors the original creation intent that God made us to be, to have as men and women who need regular time, weekly time to stop from our labors, focus on the things that really matter, recharge our emotional, spiritual, and even physical batteries. At the same time, however, we're not saying there's a law anymore, at least by what Jesus brought us and what the New Testament teaches us. But because it was and is rooted in creation itself, it's part of this balance that God has for anybody who would do life his way. And one of the amazing things that you and I have as freedom in Christ is that I think we can now choose what that day is individually for us and then protect it with everything in your arsenal when it comes to you declaring a day of rest. Does that sound freeing to some of you? It should. I like how D.A. Carson in his anthology on, on this whole idea of Sabbath called From Sabbath to the Lord's Day, a biblical, historical, and theological investigation sums it up at the end of this book. He says, after an exhaustive historical and theological overview of the major Sabbath positions, I strongly advocate that this rest can be any day or any extended part of a day, including Sunday, but that there is no biblical or compelling theological reason why it has to be Sunday. So what is he saying? He's simply saying that now as Christ followers, each of us needs to declare in our own schedule what our day of rest is going to be and live it but you're free to choose what that is. Because for some of you, Sunday is not the best day. For others of you, it is. For some of you, it might be Saturday. For some of you, it might be a day in the week. But we're all different. But by all means, declare it and live it. As many of you know, uh, obviously on Sunday, well, let me ask you this way. Is Sunday for me a day of rest, yes or no? No. I love you guys, but this is not a day of rest. I will be depleted of energy by about 7 o'clock tonight. I will not get to the end of Sunday and say, what a great Sabbath day of rest that was for me. <laughs> but Monday, as many of you know, I choose to be a day of rest for me. And I protect it strongly as a day where I rest from all of my labors. Somebody's saying, what, what do you do on Monday? What do you do on a day of rest? I like how Marva Dawn in her book, Keeping the Sabbath Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, talks about what a Sabbath rest should be. She says a Sabbath rest should incorporate four things, ceasing, resting, embracing, and celebrating. She argues that you should cease, obviously, from all work and production on your Sabbath day, which is going to be hardest enough for some of us. Then you need to rest, not just from work, but rest in your relationship with God, rest in his grace. And in so doing, then, you embrace kingdom values once again. I like how she says it. She says, we replace enculturation by the world. So you've been enculturated by the world all week long. You need a day to replace that with enculturation by God. And then by all means, celebrate. Music, food, affection, beauty with loved ones. You celebrate God's creation and his redemption once again. I've dumbed it down over the years when people ask me very quickly, what do you do on your Sabbath? And I'll say, it's really easy, pray and play. That's what I do on my Sabbath. I pray and I play. I carve out more time to spend with God. I try to start my Mondays with an extended time in his word and a time praying, just resting my soul before him. But then whatever I can think to do that would not be work, but would energize my soul and my body, I do. So some days I hike, 
Some days I'll listen to music. Some days I'll read a book that I wouldn't dare read throughout the week because it wasn't work related. Like maybe the latest Grisham novel or something like that. Anything I can think of that, that will not be work but will give me energy and restore my soul, I do. And this is, by the way, where I differ from the historic Sabbatarians. Uh, Tom Shard, our executive pastor, grew up in a church that was historically a Sabbatarian church, and they were told that on your Sabbath, you can't do anything. You, you can't watch TV, you can't go out and do a hobby, you can't go jogging. They were like the old Pharisees that said on Sabbath, you just gotta sit around and do nothing. I think that misreads the principle. I think the whole principle is to rest from your work, to rest from your labors, which you have to be very careful of because you tend to cheat on that stuff. You rest from all that. But what you do do, even if it's activity related, play related, is energizing your soul and connecting you with God. So for me, I got to tell you folks, I, I take Mondays off. I have now for 22 years and I do this almost religiously. I mean, I'm very guarded about that time. Why? Because I'm a legalist? No. It's because it's ministered to my soul in ways that it's almost hard to describe to you. It's kept me sane in the ministry. And again, I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, well, Jamie, it's easy for you to do. You're a pastor. I mean, you're supposed to be spiritual. You're supposed to obey these things. You're supposed to live these things out. Well, I grant you that. But do you think it's easy for me to tell people who vie for my time, and I sure have plenty of them, they're you. Do you think it's easy for me to tell people that vie for my time, that I'm not going to meet with you tomorrow, I'm not going to do this with you tomorrow, I'm not available to you tomorrow, not because I'm busy, but the opposite. I'm so unbusy, I'm going to spend time connecting with God. And in so doing, you might see me at a restaurant alone, as somebody they did a couple Mondays ago. They came up to me and said, what are you doing here in Chipotle? I said, I'm resting. What are you doing here bothering me? I'm like, you know... <laughs> He was a friend. And so I could say that to him. But it was like, I, I, I'm Sabbathing. I'm, I'm getting away. And Chipotle is a great way to Sabbath, if you ask me. We'll get to that in just a minute. But I, I think that there, there are things we do. And so I, I, I'm, I pay a price for this. I get people mad at me. I get the church mad at me. I get people disappointed. Elders sometimes don't get it. It's between me and God. Do you all get that? It's between me and God. Margin is between you and God. At the end of the day, you have a choice. You're either going to declare margin in your life and live it, or you're not. There will always be a price to pay. Sabbath keeping, I'm telling you, is the hardest one. It is. I had a guy come up to me after the last service. It was really cool. He handed me his card. He said, I, I, I'm, I'm the I chief executive officer at a publicly traded company. And he said, 10 years ago, he says, at Parkside Church in Cleveland. I know the church. And he said, I heard Alistair Bay give a sermon. Very simple. The title of it was, Stop Working on Sunday. And he said that the sermon basically outlined what you outlined today, and that is, stop working on Sunday, whatever the, the, whatever the Sabbath day is for you. He said, for 10 years I've done that. And he said, and, and it's been such a witnessing tool. It, my company has not folded. He said, I just, but I don't work on Sunday. It's my Sabbath. And he said, and God has blessed that in immeasurable ways. I was like, well, yeah, awesome. And he, and he will do that for you. Look, look, folks, his word can never be wrong. Do we all understand that? So, so if you don't like this principle, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what God's word says, and it's clear, and it's obvious. And so we live this to our own blessing. Now, very quickly, because we're, we're out of time, we've got to go to the communion table here. One last principle, and we'll do a whole other message on this someday in the future. Here's saying, oh, goody. Uh, here, here's the second principle, and that is we, we also need to honor God with our body if we're going to get physical margin. You need to rest 
but you also need to honor God with your body even when you're not resting. So you all know that famous passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, is it 2 Corinthians? Yeah, it was chapter 6, verses 19 to 20 that say, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, so glorify God with your body. Again, the context of this passage is in the realm of prostitution. People were sinning greatly in the church in Corinth there. And Paul's making the argument that because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you need to honor God with your body, not lie with prostitutes. But this principle applies to every area of our lives. Amen. The Holy Spirit lives in us, so we need to honor God with our bodies. And so what are the two things we do to honor God with our bodies that might give us physical margin? With this will be done. First, commit to eating wisely. We do need to do a whole sermon on this someday. I'm not a nutritionist, but it doesn't take a nutritionist to realize that Christians don't always eat very wisely. That Christians do not always honor God with their bodies when it comes to what we eat. I remember my first church, I got in a lot of trouble. I got it all out in my first church, by the way. I don't get as much trouble now, but in my first church, I said and did things that got me in a lot of trouble. And I remember one time somebody came up to me and said, we got people smoking in church. What are you going to do about it, pastor? And they meant smoking cigarettes. And I was like, well, you know, that's not a very healthy thing that they're doing and they shouldn't do it. But you know what? You're overweight and you eat Lay's potato chips. I don't say that anymore, but I think it. <laughs> and my theology, by the way, is right. You are overweight and you eat Lay's potato chips. And I'm telling you, I can prove biblically that you are sinning just as much as the smoker when it comes to honoring your body. Amen? Folks, no, there is nothing redemptive at all about Lay's potato chips. Partially hydrogenated soybean oil. Look it up. This stuff is toxic. For those of you who drink Diet Coke and eat Lay's potato chips, you're already embalmed, I promise you. <laughs> Your body will never decay. And so the reality is, is that there are many of us out there that judge other people because, you know, they're smoking cigarettes. And I'm not condoning smoking cigarettes at all. But we judge them and then take one look at us and God is going, I think that's a pot calling the kettle black. And so the reality is we need to commit to eating wisely better portions. Do we all understand portion control? But we need to have a better balance between fat, carbs, and protein. We need to eat more, less processed food and more natural food. Most of us eat things like Hot Pockets and we wonder why we have chest pain. Duh. I mean, if you replace a few carrot sticks, then Hot Pockets, you might just feel a little bit better. You're going to be hungry, but you might feel a little bit better. But you see, we're addicted to feeling full and we don't even know what it would like to be hungry and to go to bed hungry, but that's not a bad thing. We'll talk more about that in the future, but I'm telling you, that will give you physical margin. And then secondly, commit to regular rest. Now, this is a fascinating one. 1 Timothy 4.8 is one of the most misquoted, misunderstood passages in all of the New Testament. Have I piqued your interest? 1 Timothy 4.8, it says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I hear Christians quote this passage all the time for saying, you know what, the Bible says it, you know, really doesn't matter what you do with your body. doesn't matter about bodily training. What really matters is what you do with your soul. I said, where would you get 1 Timothy 4.8? That's where I got that. I go, well, you've read that thing wrong. You've read it like the opposite for what it's saying. It's saying bodily training. By the way, those are the, you're going to love this. The Greek words there are soma gymnasia. 
soma gymnasia, body soma gymnasia, the gym. So bodily exercise is of some value, but it's not saying diminished value, it's saying brief value, meaning it's a value only this side of heaven. That's why I argue there's gonna be no gyms in heaven. It's this side of heaven that bodily exercise is of some value because it's only gonna last this side of heaven. And then he goes on to say, but godliness for your soul is gonna last for all of eternity because your soul is gonna live forever with a new body that hopefully won't need a soma gymnasia, right? So he's not saying don't exercise. That's a misinterpretation of this passage. He's saying exercise. It has some value, like 70, 80 years. Honor God with your body. But also realize that that which you do for your soul is going to last forever. So here's what Dick Swenson says. He says of the 29 prescriptions in this chapter, it's in his book Margin, when it's down there. He says of the 29 prescriptions in this chapter, this recommendation to exercise will do more to establish physical margin than any of the others. Isn't that interesting? And he says three times a week, 30 to 45 minutes, getting your heart rate up will make you feel better, will do more for you in physical margin than anything else he could suggest. And I think he's right. Some of you here who are thin and fit are nodding your head, yes, there's a reason. Let's pattern our lives after them. They understand that. And when I do this, I told you I'm a hypocrite, this is all theory, but when I do this stuff, I find that it works. I feel a lot better uh, when I commit to regular exercise. So, so please see, there's incredible hope for us when it comes to physical margin, a lot of hope. But you have to make the guts, you have to have the gutsy call in your life to prioritize Sabbath rest. You gotta honor God with your body. We all know this one. And you gotta start eating a little bit better, getting more rest, starting to exercise. You'll feel better, you'll gain margin. We're gonna go to the communion table right now. We're gonna do something for our soul. And we're gonna end this service on a glorious note. And as we do that, why don't you pray with me? Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you that you've come to us with clarity in your word. And I pray, God, that as we think very personally about our lives, when it comes to physical margin and all the fatigue that we feel, and we're challenged with this thing called Sabbath rest, that, God, we would not weasel out of this. That, God, your Holy Spirit would convict each of us and that we would make the adjustments and changes to our lives to prioritize this rest that you have for our souls. And may we not feel guilty for it, even though we're going against the grain, may we, with conviction, live your creation principle. God, I pray too that you'd also help us to eat wisely, to exercise so that we might honor this temple that you've given us, that your spirit chooses to reside in. To so go to the table right now, God, bless this time as we focus on the body and blood of Jesus Christ that secured our salvation and has brought forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit, God, may you be pleased with this time of worship. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.